worship today, Lord. That would be another time that would just be encouraging, full of love, and full of honor of you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Our Old Testament reading comes from Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 53, and we will be reading from verses 3 to 6. So Isaiah chapter 53, verse 3. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. And if you are one of our Keens kids, you can go to Keens kids now uh, with grace. And if you want to hear the sermon, do we have translation today? Yes. If you want to hear the sermon in Spanish, you can call into our Spanish translation line. The phone number's in our bulletin on the website and also on the back of the sanctuary there if you need the phone number. Thank you. It's amazing how the scripture that Chris just read was written some 900, 8 to 900 years before Christ even came. Very powerful uh, messianic prophecy of the death of our Lord. So we are going to have that as a backdrop to today's sermon. And so kind of keep that in, uh, in the back of your mind. <clears throat> and we will uh, be referring to that. Our scripture for today is going to be the same scripture as last week, which is uh, John 18, verse 11. So I'm going to read from that. And then I will give you a little background. Uh, and then we will see what the Lord has. So Je- Jesus said to Peter, put the sword into the sheath, <clears throat> the cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? And again, we are uh, up right at the tail end of Jesus's life on earth before the cross. And he is in a, uh, in a situation where he has just been betrayed by Judas. Um, he is... Uh, with his disciples, Peter wants to fight. We talked about that last week. And we also talked about last week the various cups that we have to drink, how we have to consume those difficult circumstances in our life in order to obey the Father and how that is not very, obviously, a very pleasant thing, but it's a very joyful thing uh, when we do it with, uh, with our eyes on Christ and what he has done as an example for us. But today, I want to look at the actual cup that Jesus is referring to that he is, has to go drink, where he was saying, don't stop this from happening, Peter. Put that sword away. This is not the time nor the place. This is the actual cup that my father has given me to drink. What we are starting to see, the betrayal, and what we're going to see on the next few chapters uh, is certainly that. 
Now, sin, I'll start out by giving you just this little overview. Sin is one of the few things in this life that is impossible for any man to reverse. Once a sin is committed, you may be able to reverse the earthly consequences of that sin. If I say something that's disrespectful, I could say to you, I had a bad moment there, I'm so sorry. And for you, especially as a believer, you may say, yeah, I forgive you. And I give you a hug and I say, man, I got to work on that. But that, that word against you in the annals of heaven have violated the justice of God. And it's not because God is the tyrannical ruler that's looking over his creation going, oh, you did this wrong, you did that wrong, now I want payment because I'm God and you're in my land. And you, Nope. Justice is a characteristic of who God is. So it would be impossible for that sin to not be held accountable in God's justice and in his character. It's something that God demands from every single sin that you've ever committed and that I've ever committed. And and consequently, Paul says, or I should say coincidentally, Paul says that anything that is not of faith is sin. So basically, we think we're doing pretty good sometimes, right? But really, before the holy, righteous God of creation of the universe, it's, I believe, that when we get in in the presence of God and we see an account for our life, we are going to realize just how amazing that grace really is. We cannot satisfy that justice. Now this, in context of what we're talking about here, we know that Satan had entered into the heart of Judas Iscariot. That shows me that Satan had a plan. He wants to get this so-called king of the Jews, the son of God who he knew who he was, he wanted to get him to the cross. He he knew that if Jesus, this is what he felt he knew, if Jesus can go to the cross and die, well, hey, I'm going to win. He never thought God would, or for that matter, according to his character, could come and just wipe out sin. Because that would be against God's character. For God just to wink at sin or just to say, all right, is anybody looking right now? And poof, and you just everything's good now on earth. Satan would go right before his throne and accuse him because that's who he is, the accuser. But God has to be just. He also knew, Satan... That God is eternal and infinite. He can't die. God's in a pickle. How is he going to take care of this? He also knew, again, that God couldn't be unjust. So when Jesus died on the cross, he must have thought, game over. The forces of darkness are always going to reign in God's creation. And God's plan failed. Satan knew no man, no mere man, could ever be perfect in order to create a scenario for redemption of even one person. 
But then the Son of God became man, and possibly Satan thought, well, Jesus is going to become king and potentially lead the nation of Israel as the light of the world, as all the prophecy says. And no, but if I can get him to die, I can postpone that. I could, I could stop that from happening. So what did Satan do? He pushed Jesus towards the cross. He incited Judas. He incited the Jews. We know that the Satan was the father of lies. And Jesus said, Satan's your father to the Jewish people that were against him. The Romans, the heathens, they were against him as well. He incited all of them to move Jesus to get him to the cross. And then Jesus on the cross gives up his spirit. He says, it's finished. I'm done. And Satan said, wow, I got this. See, although Jesus lived a perfect life as a man, he was fully embodied by God. And he, unbeknownst to Satan at the time, created the only scenario for redemption. The plan all along was for the Son of God to defeat sin and death and reverse that curse. Reverse the repercussions of sin, how? By becoming sin. By taking on all the sin, all the sin of every single person that believed in him, taking it upon his flesh, and then dying at the cross. And then, of course, facing death by overcoming it and rising from the dead. This is something no human could ever do. And as Paul says, the forces of darkness were made a spectacle. They were fooled. Everything was reversed. Amen. Amen. However, before Jesus's victory, before all this could take place, something had to happen. In God's world of perfect justice, Jesus didn't come down to earth with an earthly crown and a royal robe and stand up to Caesar and say, I am the true king and here are my legions of angels and we're taking you over, which is what probably Satan thought the plan was to do. Nope, he came humbly and meekly as a human being, fully God. What had to happen was he had to physically endure the pain according to God's justice, of redeeming the world, because that's what God's justice demanded. He had to take on the full impact of God's just wrath against sin. This is what sin deserves. And according to God's holy law, his justice can never be and will never be avoided. This act of satisfying God's justice is referred to by Jesus and the scriptures as the cup. We also theologically, we could see it as penal substitution, meaning Jesus was a propitiation for our sins. He took the penalty in our place. But ultimately, we see just that, and we don't see the actual ingredients of the entire cup that Jesus had to satisfy and absorb in order to set the creation and his people free. Only after this cup was fully consumed could then justice, forgiveness, and atonement 
and restoration begin and be implemented. That's it. Couldn't happen. He could never forgive until this happened. This is why the cross created the ultimate freedom from exile situation for God's people. Because they are no longer in bondage because there's forgiveness. You see, where there's forgiveness, there can't be exile. Where there's forgiveness, there can't be punishment. Where there's forgiveness, there can't be judgment. And this is not a neutral, wishy-washy thing. It's either you are or you're not. And God's people are not under the justice of God. So only after this cup was fully consumed could all of these take place. All, the God-man, Jesus Christ, had to face death and defeat it with the holy blood sacrifice of himself. And that is what we're going to talk about. What does this mean, though, for us? Well, again, we talked about the various cups we drink that the Father gives us. And the cup that you're drinking now, or maybe the cup that you're staring at and saying, you know, you know, we talked about last week, instead of drinking the cup, we revert to our own resources to try to get around the cup, to try to solve the problem instead of drinking down the medicine. Jesus did not do that. He had to particularly drink the cup, swallow it down with every single ingredient that is in it. Now, if he did not do this, life after death for you and me in our future resurrected life would not be anything you would ever want to experience. Just as importantly is, without his consuming this cup, we can never experience the peace of God in this life, regardless of what sort of life you live, regardless of how healthy you are, how wealthy you are, how good of a family or bad of a family you were born into. It doesn't matter what you feel people deserve. Without Jesus drinking this cup, we would all be lost, and we would not be able to have that peace. Is not peace our goal? Peace. I want peace. You know, we want world peace. You know, we want inner peace. We want all sorts of contentment because we feel that that is going to give us the happiness that we feel we deserve. But God gives us peace that transcends understanding. It's what I like to call judicial peace, which means in the court of God's, uh, in in God's law court, we are now innocent. We don't have to be nervous of going before the judge because we have peace with, with the judge. And experiential peace, we experience God. We experience Jesus. Amidst the craziness of the world, we're like, you know, I mean, it's we're, we're, we have we are seated in Christ. And, spe- and this only can happen in this life and the next because Jesus drank that cup. Many don't experience it. They reject Christ. But only when we see the glory and the love of God through this cup does true peace come. So what I want to do is go over this cup and I want you to sort of contemplate it, you know, we, 
We all, we all want to come here and we all want to receive from God. We want to, we want to get something that, know, that we know. We say, you know what? Today the pastor said a couple of things that really impacted me. I wonder how he knew that or I wonder, that's pretty cool how God works. But today's message, with the, not because of me giving it, but because of the content of it, this cup and what Jesus did for us, should be all we need in life to have peace. No, I mean, anything else should pale in comparison. The first thing that this cup is that should bring us ultimate peace is the fact that what Jesus is enduring right now in this chapter, he had what? One of his close friends who he, who he ate bread with betrayed him. And this is the first part of that process that Chris read, of him bearing our grief, bearing our sorrows. Jesus carried it all. And one of those things was the betrayal. And now he's about to go through what we call, what we would look at as a trial, a criminal prosecution. So the first part of this cup, number one, is this criminal prosecution or trial. Why does he have to go on trial? Well, Jesus is standing in the place of his people. The the, the gospel came to who first? The Jews. And the Jews were waiting for years for this forgiveness to be implemented. The law of God could never issue the forgiveness that they needed. The law of God, although they were all bound by the law, It could never give them what they needed. So by breaking even one part of the law, they were guilty of it all. And each one of them and each one of us has to be in Jesus's feet, shoes right here, getting ready to be arrested and brought before the judge and and prosecuted as a criminal, as a lawbreaker. Jesus did this for every sin of every person who believes in him. Isaiah 53, 8 says, and this is a new living translation. And and I don't usually prefer it again, like I said, unless I really need it to, but it says it really well. He was unjustly condemned. See, you and I are justly condemned. You and I right now, would be justly condemned if God's police force walked in here and said, come with me, you're under arrest. No, but I have rights. No, you don't have any rights. You sinned against the holy God. You're under arrest. And your best friend turned you in. Your husband, your wife, your children. Imagine it. He was unjustly condemned. See, the Bible says that in Romans 5.1, it says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Justification by faith is a legal term. It's a courtroom term. It's not something that happens to you physically. It's something that is a forensic 
investigation on your life that says guilty, but then because of Christ's death, because of Christ drinking that cup that he drank and taking that place of that criminal prosecution, when you're standing before the judge, you now are no longer guilty. You no longer have a guilty verdict over you. That guilty verdict has been taken away because it has been satisfied elsewhere. And literally, the judge has nothing to say to you but go free. That's what justification by faith is. And, the, and, and when we have that, we can have peace with God. We don't ever have to worry about this criminal prosecution. If you know Christ, I want to encourage you. I don't know how many of you here have had maybe fathers that have disappointed you. Have an earthly father that disappointed you? I did. Very, very difficult not to see God as, a, as the, having the characteristics of a disappointing earthly father if you've ever experienced that. Very difficult. Christ makes you a new creature. Jesus, God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit now becomes the person in that place. He is not the angry judge that's waiting and chomping at the bit to pull you in front of the courtroom and say, why did you do it? How did you do it? How could you have done that? How many times have you been arrested? How many times have you done that sin? You should be ashamed of yourself. Guilty. Nope. None of that. You know Christ. You won't ever hear that from God. You'll hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. You'll hear not guilty because of my son and what he has done. Jesus has endured your criminal proceedings, and now you can have peace with the judge. What a glorious love that he has for us. See yourself in your, and this is one of the things that I was saying before, that if you can just grasp a couple of these things, it would be everything we need to have peace. See yourself in the place of Jesus's criminal prosecution and know that that's what we deserve. That's what God's justice demanded of you and you did not and do not have to do that in Christ. Secondly, he had the criminal prosecution, but he also had the just punishment that he took. Physical and emotional punishment. We're not there yet, but we're going to read over the next couple of months about the, the cross. But, but really, we're also going to read about the humiliation that Jesus had went through. In this trial, the, the, the man that was healing and raising the dead and that was loving so many, was graciously pouring himself out for people, was treated like a criminal, slapped in the face and spit on. He endured the crown of thorns. The king, you want to be a king? Here you go, give you a crown. In Isaiah 53, we read a lot about this. In 3 to 5, he was despised and forsaken of men. A man of sorrows. He was acquainted with grief. Despised, forsaken, a man of sorrows and, and grieving. That's what Jesus, that's what he 
endured. We can't take that for a few minutes. We start feeling grieved and forsaken. We go to the doctor. Give me some meds. I don't want to fail this way. Or maybe we do other stuff. Who knows? But Jesus lived that as part of this atonement. Like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. Our griefs he bore, and our sorrows he carried. This is something that in our culture, especially when I see on social media, it's very, very difficult. I mean, I don't interact on social media anymore, but I I like to scroll through and look, you know, and see things that are going on. And, And it's amazing when, how offended people can get with little comments or you didn't like and I liked and you didn't like this or whatever. But if somebody is <clears throat> despising you, forsaking you, saying bad things about you, it's almost uh, uh, it's a formula for a social media explosion battle. You know, you, you start to see it on Facebook and you see like a couple of people go back and forth and then you look under that and it's like, click here for 178 replies. You know, it's like, I'm not even going there because you could just, you know where it's going to end up. But the point is, is that Jesus was unoffendable for us. He was, he took the emotional pain that we deserved for our sin. Are you feeling guilt for your sin? Are you grieving over your sin? You should. You should to hear it now, but know that God has forgiven you. He doesn't want you to carry those griefs. He doesn't want you to walk around despised and and feeling forsaken or feeling as if God has rejected you. No, he already carried that out for you at the cross. But it wasn't just emotional. It was physical as well. He was smitten of God, verse 4. He was afflicted. He was pierced through for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. The word crushed here is grinded to powder. It wasn't just broken. It was grinded down. And we are healed by this physical beating that Jesus took. Isaiah 53.10, the Lord was pleased to crush him and put him to grief. Why? Why was God looking at his only begotten son and pleased that he was experiencing this affliction? It was because God so loved the world and he loves you. That's why he did it for you, for his love for his people. That's why it pleased him to free you by crushing Jesus Christ. He condemned sin in his flesh. And I think one of the biggest fears, well, we know that the biggest fear of human beings is death. We fear death. We have an instinct to save our life, to to live in, in, in most cases. But I believe the fear of death has a lot to do with what is going to happen on the other side when we get there, the fear of the unknown. And we know, we have a sense of justice in our, written on our hearts. We know that the sins that we committed, if you don't know Christ, you're never going to get rid of that feeling of guilt. 
And you could pile stuff on it, but it keeps creeping up through the dirt and pokes its head out. Here I am again. And you just keep piling dirt down. But guess what? That is never, ever going to leave you. However, when you're in Christ, you have no fear of punishment after death. None. You're not going to get what you deserve. You're going to get mercy. You're going to get what you don't deserve. And that is grace. See, God, again, he treated Jesus on the cross and treated him as if it was you and me. That's what he did in Jesus' death. So that way he could treat us and love us like Christ. It was the switch. He gave us that. And that's, that is, in my opinion, um, one of the biggest uh, exhale moments is that I know that I can face that ultimate date that we all have, that we all think is never going to happen. Uh, we can face that day and know that God is in completely con- complete control of it. You can't do anything about it. And that when you stand before God, there is going to be no punishment. You can have peace and hope for the transition into, through death. And you can know that you have peace and hope for the future life while waiting for the resurrection. This, I believe this understanding for me, it brings joy, an overwhelming sense of surrender when this aspect of the cup is understood. So it was criminal prosecution that he endured the cup. It was physical and emotional punishment. And all of that obviously leads to the full consummation, the full focus of all of God's justice being satisfied in one place with his wrath being poured out and this is where Jesus, the third point is, is that he endured death and faced death. But also, very important, very important, he faced death on a cross. Why is that important? Because Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. It is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So Jesus, him just dying, that would have been pretty easy, right? Catch a stray bullet or stray arrow. Or just lay down and say, hey, I'm going to go, I'm just going to jump off of the temple mount and give my life for the sins of the world. Nope. That has, that, that would have, there's no way that could have happened. He had to endure the cup, every aspect of the cup, but he also had to become that curse. And you see, the thing is, is what we have to remember here is that God's law is not above his, him. God's law is not above himself, where this is some like, uh, this abstract law up here that, you know, that God is bound to follow. no. You know who put the curse? God. See, the law of God is an expression of who God is. 
The curse of God is an expression of who God is. He's holy and righteous and just. So he had to do this. He had to invoke this supernatural uh, curse, this power that says bad punishment is deserved here. And he had to, um, it says here that a definition of, of a curse is a pronouncement of ill fortune because one opposes God's plans. God has it, had, had created it so that if somebody opposes me and it sins against me, they are accursed. And Jesus became that curse for us. <clears throat> he became a curse to reverse the curse. Now, I don't know if you remember when we were back in John 8, we talked about Numbers chapter 5. Do you remember Numbers 5? Now, Numbers 5 was a part of the application of the law. And this was where if a man suspected his wife of having an affair, he could have her drink what they call the cup of bitterness. And what he would do is he would take his suspected wife, who maybe, you know, she was, she's been out late a few nights and he followed the footprints in the sand to some guy's house and he said, where you been doing? And she, maybe she was lying or maybe she's innocent. Maybe he's just an overbearing, crazy husband that's just always, th- he's jealous and he's always thinking, you know, why are you looking at him, you know? But he could take this woman to the priests in the temple And the priest, what he would do is he would create this cup of bitterness. He would take these uh, bitter, uh, bitter herbs or whatever, and he would take some, he would write the curses on a scroll with sand and dirt. You remember Jesus writing the dirt on the floor with the woman caught in adultery? We sort of tied this into that back then. It's a great tie-in. And then he would take that sand and he would pour it into this cup. And the woman would have to drink it. Now, if she was innocent, nothing would happen. But if she was guilty, what would end up happening is her stomach would begin to swell. And then it would have burst because of her adultery. And she would ultimately die or at least she would not be able to bear children. And I thought that this was a very neat parallel because Jesus, who did he go and die for? He died for those who committed adultery against God. He died for his unfaithful bride. And I love how John ties it in into his gospel and talks about Jesus while when he was on the cross and he died, his stomach burst. And he said, and I saw the water come out after he was pierced. But this is the cup. You and I drink those cups. I was talking before about putting sweetener in the medicine when your children have to drink down that nasty flu medicine. We try to do everything we can to get them to swallow it, to make it what? Taste good. Jesus, his cup was every single sin, past, present, and future. And the full repercussions and punishment of that sin. And he had to swallow it down without any sweetener. 
He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus became sin. In other words, he consumed sin in his flesh. He, he, he pulled it all. Again, he never committed against anything against the law, but yet he bore all the curse of the law. He gathered it all into one place, fooling the, the, the forces of darkness, and when all the sin was gathered in his, in his flesh, God afflicted him. And he took and he faced death. Now, some people say, well, I don't get this because you're telling me that if I don't repent and trust Jesus Christ, that I have to face death. Okay, I get that. Jesus faced death. But Jesus only faced death for three days and then he rose again. But you're telling me that I have to die and go to hell forever? Eternity separated from God? That doesn't seem to match up too well, does it? How does that work? You see, we want to understand that with Jesus, Jesus doesn't say to, doesn't have to go and mimic exactly everything that we are doing. It's not a it's not a tit for tat or a pound for pound thing. Jesus had to overcome your enemy and defeat it, and it was impossible for that to ever happen any other way, other than by the holy, the infinitely holy blood of the Son of God. So Jesus didn't just go and die to try to say, okay, instead of punching him in the face, punch me in the face and I'll take it. It wasn't necessarily that when it came to the eternal separation from God. Jesus went and he defeated the only enemy that we could never defeat, and that is death, sin and death. So Jesus went head to head with the forces of darkness. He went head to head with death on your behalf. He absorbed it all. He consumed it all. Infinitely took it all in. Infinitely took all the sins. And those sins died with him. All of the sins that you've ever committed, dead on the cross with Christ. Now Jesus rises from the dead and defeats death. So it no longer has a hold over you. Yeah, so now you don't have to be at number one. You don't have to embrace the consequences of death because hell wasn't made specifically to say, well, I'm going to make hell so I could torture all those sinners. And that's, that's not how it went. You see, hell is made for Satan and his angels and all those things that are against God. All of those things. That's what, when you, when you die without Christ, what's, what ends up happening is, is you have nowhere else to go but to stay where you are. And that is to go down with this age. And this age is going to, be, is going to pass away as simultaneously the new age is breaking in. And when Christ comes, he's going to fully bring it and consummate it. And all those that are his are going to be fully renewed with him. But all those that aren't are going to pass away under the consequences of death. And that is eternal separation from God. And that is, as the Bible says, in hell, separation. And you could read all about it in, in many different scriptures. It's a very, very scary place. We don't know a lot about it. But do we really need to? I think we know enough. 
When we're separated from God, that's what it is. But if you know Christ, you don't have to fear death. You can have that peace. Listen to what Jesus says. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, even though he dies, even though he dies, yet he shall live. How does that make sense? You see, you're going to face that death that you're not going to have that sting of death when you die. You may, again, we're gonna, our bodies are going to deteriorate if we live to old age and you know, we may die in our sleep, like we all think we're going to die in our sleep and peaceful, or we may die violently in a car crash. I don't know, that's going to be painful. But when you enter into the crossing over into death, the pain of that car crash is going to be nothing compared to what the agony will be if you die without Christ. But yet if you die with Christ, even though you die, you're going to live. You're going to pass through it untouched. And you're going to be in in the presence of God, surrounded and protected by Christ and his blood. Everyone who lives and believes in him will experience this. Everyone Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. See, that is an amazing thing. So see, Jesus took our criminal prosecution. He took, this is the cup, the criminal prosecution, physical punishment, emotional punishment, and finally death. And he drank it down. And that satisfied God's justice and that exhausted God's wrath. There is no wrath left for you if you're in Christ. There's no wrath for you at all. There is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. So if if you're in Christ, you have nothing absolutely to fear in this life and the transition into the next and into the next. Amen. Now, what if you do know, what if you don't know Christ again and you haven't acknowledged and believed these truths? Again, this is what the Bible says. Number one, there is no true peace with God. Again, regardless of what it is you do or what you have to feel, but you will undergo a criminal trial before God. The trial, I don't know exactly how it's going to go. I was looking at some research on that we only use a certain percentage of our brain, like 5 or 10% of our brain, and that if we are able to use all of our brain, we would be able to literally remember every single thing that we ever said, did, experienced in the most enlightened way. These are what scientists say. And I have to say that to me, sort of because God works through and in situations and through people and through us, that maybe he will activate that full brain of ours when we stand before him. Because you know, we're going to say, it wasn't me. I don't know if it really happened that way, God. You know what I mean? I don't know, you know, that. No, but God, we're going we're gonna to know that he has every single right to put us through this criminal trial. You have to repent and embrace Christ. You will undergo punishment. You will have to stand before God in light of your sins and in light of his holiness without any defense. And it's a very scariest thing. You will experience the pain of physical death, the pain of the transition into the next life, the torment, and you will be forced to drink the cup that no human can drink, which is eternal separation from God. 
But again, the beauty of this all is the free offer of the gospel. Do you truly understand what Jesus did for you? And are you acting and living on that? And I'm not trying to say, are you being a really good person? Are you going out there and being doing really good things and doing really good deeds? If you are, good. But if you're doing those things and you haven't embraced Christ and have a full understanding of who he is and what it was that he did, then you are ultimately ignoring the blood of the, of the Son of God or trampling over it or devaluing it. You see, if all you ever had to live with, if all you were able to grab onto for this life, if everything else were to be taken from you right now, every person, everything, every possession, would you be satisfied with what was talked about today? That Jesus took your place. That Jesus cleanses you from sin. That Jesus frees you from death. And that Jesus right now, regardless of where you are, wants to make you into that human being that he intended you to be from the very beginning. Is that what you could say? Jesus is king. He saves every single person that comes to him. He'll never reject somebody when they come to him. Never. So I want to encourage you to go to him. Don't worry about how you feel right now. Don't worry about whether or not, is it God calling me? Is it me? How is this working? Theologically, how is it working? I'm telling you right now, that there'll be time for that. I'm telling you right now that if you haven't embraced the blood of Christ, if you haven't embraced what Jesus did for you with that criminal punishment, then maybe you don't think what you've done in your life is all that bad and that you don't really need a Savior. And that's unfortunate because you missed everything. But I don't think so. I'm giving you the benefit of the doubt. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Know for a fact that he has taken that place where you should have stood and tell him about it. Seek after him about it. Everything, listen, it's motion before emotion, right? So get into motion with this. Try praying and thanking the Lord. I said something about this the other day and somebody emailed me and said, you said, Pat, in your sermon, uh, to, to make 90% of my prayer time to just be praising God for what he did at the cross. And if I did that, I would only spend about 32 seconds praying for other people, because according to how long he prays. And so I laughed and I told him, listen, I was, it was just exaggerating like I often do about things to try to drive my point home. But I do, I, I do want you to, I do want you to, I would love to hear that you focus your time with Christ Forget about all the things that you want changed for now. Forget about all the, 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 the problems that you're having in your life for now. And just try for the next couple of days during your prayer time to just meditate and thank the Lord and thank Christ and praise him for what he has done for you at the cross. Because there is no other hope, no other hope for mankind, no other hope for you, and no other hope for me. So let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for, the, for taking that cup, God. We seek to follow your example. But Lord, we seek to know the impact of this greater and greater. I pray, God, that if anyone is here that doesn't know, that doesn't know you, that you would open up their heart, Lord, according to your will. 
that they would embrace what you've done, that they would see you as a loving father, that they would see that your grace is sufficient for all things. And where sin abounds, grace abounds more. And Lord, I thank you for that. I thank you for this, uh, for this congregation, Lord, and what you're doing in and through and for us, Lord. But God, we want to know you more. And Lord, it starts at the cross from what you tell us in your word. So I pray that you would give us a clearer, crisper vision of what that cross actually means. And I just thank you in Christ's name. Amen. So I'd like to call our worship uh, team up and we will um, have our last worship song and then we'll have some announcements. If you need prayer, if you have questions, please don't hesitate to come up to talk with one of us to stay after, ask questions. Don't leave here if you're unsure. Don't leave here with any questions unanswered. Let's all stand together.